features thought leadership interviews with community banking and credit union executives on relevant banking topics. If you are that CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. The most downloaded podcast in the community banking space, Bank Talk promises that you will learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. Today, we are talking ESG. ESG is uh, the environmental, social, and governance. You know, the way I think about this is uh, I always thought of ESG policy and ESG factors as a way to sort of rate companies as you're trying to determine what you want to invest in. Meaning, if you're looking for companies that are pretty high on green energy, you might be able to find a fund that takes into account uh, ESG factors. Uh, if you're looking for somebody that has policies that you believe in related to how they're governing their organization, you'd, you'd probably look to an ESG type of a fund as far as the way to make your investment. This last week, I ran into Max Cook. Uh, Max is the CEO of Missouri Bankers. He was presenting to a group, around, and, and one of the topics he brought up was ESG as it relates to how bankers might think about the ESG policies. And it was really a little different than I had thought about it before. So I thought, hey, let's let's get Max on the podcast, see if we can get his perspective, because I think it might be important for you as a CEO, uh, potentially your board members to, you know, just some things to consider when it comes to ESG policy. So without further ado, uh, let's get to Max. Uh, today, I have with me uh, Max Cook. Max is the CEO of Missouri Bankers. Good afternoon, Max. Good afternoon, Charlie. So, Max, you and I bumped into each other at a event where you were speaking to a group of bankers, and I think as as part of that, ESG came up. But I was a little bit naive in just what it all meant. So, I did a bit of research. You and I kind of talked about after your engagement, and I thought what I would try to do is frame this up a little bit for our audience, so they understand, you know, ESG in general, and then and then we can kind of bake it down to what you think that means for the community banker. So let, let me start with ESG. I, I looked up a couple definitions. Here's one I thought was a pretty good one. Uh, the Google definition right, of ESG is uh, the environmental social governance factors. There are a subset of non-financial performance indicators, which include ethical, sustainable, and corporate government issues, such as making sure there are systems in place to ensure accountability and managing the corporation's carbon footprint. So that's the end of the definition, but you know, it sounds to me like a good idea, right, at a, at a high level. And then you, you discuss investing in an ESG-type stock fund, and the definition expands a bit, right? They start scoring ESG investments using a few different factors. Uh, environmental, social, and governments. So I can break environmental. I just grabbed a couple of the, sub, the subsets of environmental Environmental would include things like uh, carbon emissions, climate change. The social scores include issues such as labor management and consumer financial protection. And the governance issues, governance issues, can include uh, you know sort of the composition of the board in terms of diversity and independence, executive comp, track tax transparency, 
So, you know, how are you governing your organization? With that said, right, that sounds simple enough, right? Uh, an investment strategy that hits on social issues. And, and I think on the face of it, we all agree with the principle, invest in areas that meet, you know, you know somebody's social values. Maybe it's yours, or, but at least there's a criteria, there's a set of criteria. But today, Max, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about perhaps a, a different way that ESG is being used. Today, what we're going to talk about is this interesting perspective, Max, that you have on what ESG might mean for bankers. Let's start with this discussion around ESG as a policy of the Biden administration. Right. The current administration has been pushing an agenda towards green energy. And, you know, I think down the road, we all feel like climate control and everything is all good and uh, probably a great idea. But you know, based on discussions you've had with your banking peers and government constituents, you know, explain the policy itself. You know, give us a give us a feel for, for what you're hearing, you know, uh, amongst bankers and, and the, you know, the government side of the organization. Um, Charlie, first and foremost, um, this administration is promoting green energy and we as an industry, the banking industry, we don't have a problem with uh, being good stewards of our environment. But with all that said, um, the push uh, has come so strong, so fast, and without authority to do so, that it's troublesome for all of us. First and foremost, I, I have to, to say that there's not enough green energy in, developed in this country or in this world, for that matter, to replace our current energy sources that we use. So we have to be realistic in the speed and depth and breadth in which we attack uh, this issue. The administration is using the prudential regulators, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, to uh, impose uh, these various rules and regulations uh, with respect to ESG onto the banking industry. It varies slightly um, as to how is defined and imposed because we have the very largest banks in this country who publicly traded companies. Uh, they also have the SEC involved in oversight. And through the SEC and the other regulators, they are requiring these largest banks to assess their carbon footprint, be it their own as an entity or that of their clientele. And so they have to assess the carbon footprint of a borrower. And so it becomes very labor-intensive, time-consuming, to go through that process. With the smaller institutions and even the regional institutions, some are publicly traded, some are not. But even still, they're asking you know, these institutions to measure their carbon footprint and take a look at their borrowers, customers, so forth, their carbon footprint and their vulnerability to climate change and so forth and so on. So it is a new world. It is time-consuming. It is capital-consuming. So it, it has everybody's attention. Is it fair to say that prior to this, the majority of your audit is around the financial viability? If, you, you know, if they're going to audit you based on your, let's say, your loan portfolio, 
I would think they'd stick to, you know, did you make a good loan? Did you make a loan to somebody who can pay it back? And and now what you're saying is that is some of that is is now skewing towards, oh, by the way, tell me if if Bob's a diesel producer or and you could probably give me much better examples. Your your constituency, I think, is rural for the most part. So you get into farmers and that type of thing. They, they I think what I'm hearing from you is they're asking uh, some questions around your customer base that your customer base, you can't think of really a good reason your customer base would be answering those questions. Is that, a, is that fair or did I, did I go too far with that? No, I think, I think you're spot on really. If, if you're taking care of the banking needs of farmers and ranchers, then the bank and the farmer and rancher need to be concerned with this policy because of the petrochemicals that are used, fertilizers, the fuels, methane gas produced from cattle herds or dairy herds, things such as that have to be weighed and so forth. And it just adds expense to everything that you're doing. And that ultimately gets passed on to the customer. If you're banking the energy sector, be it producers or refiners, let's talk about ethanol and world that I'm in here in Missouri and of course all the surrounding states, a lot of ethanol production and uh, how it gets measured and weighed uh, in the process. I could go on with examples, but the bottom line is we're increasing the cost to the to the banks and in turn to the customers. And I think we have to be very thoughtful and very careful about that. Bankers have measured vulnerability to the environment, maybe in different ways, but forever, because we have to deal with floods and hurricanes and tornadoes. And the insurability of that risk through flood insurance or the like, uh, banks have always had to deal with environmental risk. So uh, in some ways, it's not new, but again, the depth and breadth of which they're asking us to uh, deal with this is little, is going too far, is going too far. And you and I had a, an interesting conversation around the gap between the theory and the reality in a rural space. And, and you know, you, you, I think you used sort of two analogies. One of them was, how do I get my car from one side of this rural state to the other? And then the other one was just, you know, thinking about a tractor and the likeliness of that being an EV, right? an electric vehicle at some point in the future, right? well, in the, in the near future, even maybe the long-term future. I mean, where am I going to plug in if I'm, I've got 300 acres that I've got to get through today? So uh, give us just a little bit on theory, I think, is different than what you you saw as the reality. Could you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think if you live in an urban area where you're going to drive your vehicle just around town, you know, 85, 90 percent of the time, no big deal. You're going to have plenty of places to plug in. You're not going to drive enough miles to run the batteries down, so forth and so on. I, I think it fits better in a more urban setting. You get out here in Missouri or Wisconsin. Iowa or wherever you want to pick in the Midwest and more rural states, electric vehicles aren't always the best case. I have to go drive close to 450 miles to see my kids. I'm not going to set out 
through southern Missouri and northern Arkansas in an electric vehicle and not have any place to plug in. And they don't exist in those rooms. So I'm going to have to drive a conventional vehicle that burns gasoline. Uh, farmers with their tractors and other equipment they use, electric vehicles like that are just not going to be practical as they exist today. And so I, you know, there is a reality uh, surrounding this issue that needs to be thought about and recognized and allowed for uh, until the technology catches up. That's a, no, that's a great perspective. You had mentioned ethanol producers. And, and I, uh, to me, that's a really interesting factor, right? Because where my head goes with this is if you at a bank couldn't tell what the carbon footprint of your customer was, What's the downside? And then, meaning if you can't fill out the paperwork that they're looking for, or they want to ping you on an audit, what control do you have over that? I mean, as far as I know, there's no control. We have no control. They can criticize and, as we call it, write you up in their exam report and ding you um, on your examination uh, such that if it's in their eyes, too bad. Uh, they can impose all kinds of different kinds of penalties or requirements on the bank going forward. And again, it's all a cost, all an expense. We're wandering through a, a very dark forest right now, and we don't know exactly where we're going with all of this. And gotcha. so there's a lot of questions yet to be answered. And uh, so my second question on the uh, an ethanol producer, would, do they consider that a positive or a negative? <laughs> right. So I think of, right, I think of ethanol as, uh, you know, call it a corn-based product that becomes fuel. I, I, I would think that would be, you know, one or two gold stars in their books as compared to, you know, a checkmark or whatever, you know, whatever a downside. Depends on what you're going to talk, you know, regular gasoline with ethanol is 10 to 15% ethanol. And you get much lower than that, then your fuel economy goes down and right. you're, going to burn, you're going to burn more gas and more emissions and so forth. So you know, from that standpoint, uh, I'm not sure that the ethanol producer necessarily uh, wins in the end. You get the E85, which is out there and available, 85% ethanol. But again, fuel efficiency, um, you start getting declining performance and so forth. So, is it fair to say that they might classify that as a fossil fuel? Well, at least partial fossil fuel. So that's probably a little more a negative than a than a potentially even a positive. We always used to think of it as a positive. You know, we we have this dependency on fossil fuels happened, you know, years and years before any of us was born, and you know, ethanol comes along, and at least if prices are right it's you know it's a it's a positive for the for the farmer maybe not so much anymore right now maybe not in the maybe not in the green energy esg environment yeah and i'm i'm maybe a little naive on that subject to weigh that exactly all right good no 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 i, I just didn't know if you knew and uh just thought it was interesting right it's it's certainly an interesting debate over whether that's helpful or, or hurtful in the esg space Let's change the topic around just slightly. Uh, you you had mentioned a couple of the organizations that are kind of being used to to fight for this policy, right, within the administration. 
And, you know, I kind of think about it like this, right? How many government agencies does it take to screw in a light bulb, right? Let, let me ask the question a different way. How many government agencies can put pressure on a policy if, you know, somebody in the administration wants them to? I mean, where are we seeing, where are you seeing the pressure from and, and what organizations? Could you walk us through that again a little bit? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the broad answer is as many as they want to use. But the reality is right now that the SEC for publicly traded banks, the FDIC for all banks, the OCC for national banks, and ultimately this will trickle down into the state banking departments at some point for state chartered banks as well. So you have all of those entities uh, that come into play. Overarching all of that is the Consumer Protection Bureau, CFPB, and I suppose they'll find a way to, to put their fingers uh, into this issue as well. So the sad thing is, and the scary thing is, that there has been no legislation enacted that provides any authorization for these agencies to pursue these ESG policies. And that is just not how our government is designed to work. We have a government of checks and balances. And we have a Congress who enact legislation and has to go through two chambers and be agreed to, and then has to go to the president and be signed. We have the courts who can weigh in on those statutes as to whether or not it's constitutional. Uh, there are so many checks and balances, and that's by design. That's to keep from having an agency or one branch of government having too much power. As it stands right now, that's where we're headed with all of this, because, again, there is no statutory authorization for these policies. In the Obama administration, we had a similar issue. We called it Operation Choke Point. And the uh, banking regulators were trying to keep the banks from uh, doing business with the likes of, let's say, gun manufacturers or ammunition dealers or um, legal marijuana businesses or the likes. So uh, we got that ground to a halt. Ultimately, it took a while. But now they're back just with a different name. Uh, but somewhat similar approach. There's an interesting comparison to the the Russian-Ukraine, uh, what's going on over in Ukraine. I would argue that if you want to stop a government from doing wrong, you put a chokehold on their money. It, it seems like, it almost seems like this administration, and maybe again, maybe even the Obama administration was doing something similar, but it seems like they might be using a similar tactic for our own businesses. Uh, right. In other words, you want to control who's producing something besides green energy. You just put it. You, you put a, the clamps on their money, yeah. make it harder to give them money, make them harder to, to lend to them, make it harder to do whatever. You can that, draw that line very easily. I mean, obviously, it's a little more heavy handed tactic when it comes to a, a you know, a government where you want to do everything you can to stop their money from flowing 100 percent. But this isn't too far off, I don't think. No, it's not far off at all. And again, I, I think it's fairly easy to draw that line from point A to point B and, and uh, draw that conclusion. I mean, money 
keeps the world going. If you you can suppress capital, if you can suppress liquidity in the the business or in the system, uh, then you're going to have a much stronger hold on what's going on. Yeah, and I always thought, right, as a taxpayer, I always thought of the government working for me, right? I'm the I'm the guy paying the bills. They work for me. And, you know, you hear, you certainly hear sort of the far right winger screaming about socialism. But to me, the government trying to stop business from happening, it, right? I mean, I don't know if that's the definition of socialism, but it can't be far off. We're walking a very fine line on some of these issues. And um, I think we have to be careful where our government and how they control um, money, capital, and how it's used. Um, I'm not uh, going to sit here and and say anything too radical, but again, checks and balances have to be in place. And uh, meeting yesterday with a number of bankers and Congressman Luke DeMeyer, who is from Missouri, he's a ranking member of the Small Business Committee. He's the number two ranking person member uh, on Financial Institutions Committee. And this issue was brought up and he has grave concerns. He he was probably the person out in front fighting against uh, choke, uh, choke point back during the Obama administration. He's very concerned about this too. So what's the proper way to get this done? I know you had mentioned, right? I mean, is it a uh, is it a bill that becomes a law? You touched on it a little bit before that, you know, we need the checks and balances, but. It, it, the issue needs to be debated in a public forum, if you will. So Congress, um, both chambers of Congress need to, to debate this issue and determine what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, how far do we go, what's the timeline look like. The public needs to have the opportunity to weigh in with Congress as they debate that issue. And you build good public policy through that process. That's why we have everybody gets a chance to weigh in, but we haven't had that. And of course, then the president, uh, he or she would have the opportunity to um, consider it and either sign it, veto it, or the whole process. And, you know, the courts play a role in this. And we saw that not too long ago when the EPA went out and started enforcing rules and regulations of their own that were never authorized by Congress. And the Supreme Court weighed in and said, no, EPA, you can't be doing this. Uh, you've gone way too far. And so they struck down a host of rules and regulations that the EPA was trying to enforce. And I think we're in a very similar situation right now with ESG. Okay. No, that's great. Well, Max, I, I really appreciate your time here. Any other advice you'd, you know, you'd give either your government representatives or your fellow bankers as it comes to is there anything? Is there anything they can do about this? Yeah, I mean, as a, as a general public, as an industry, since the beginnings of our country, uh, we have all been charged with the responsibility of peacefully weighing in and letting our voice be heard and our opinions be heard and, and 
to try to influence, if you will, policy in this country. And if we sit quietly, then I hate to say it, we deserve what we get. So my encouragement be you a citizen of this country, not a part of the banking industry, or if you're a banker, make a phone call, write a letter, be civil, be peaceful about it, but get your point across and let the members of our Congress, both the House and Senate, understand how you stand on these issues, not just ESG, anything else that's out there. Okay, good advice. Well, Max, thank you. I really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us today. Happy to do it. I enjoy yeah. this, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to visit again. Yeah, no, this is great. It's been very educational. So thanks for taking the time. You bet. You have a great day. All right. Okay, well, I wanted to thank Max once again for joining us. Um, great interview. I, I like to think I learned something every day. and. Uh, I certainly did when I heard a different perspective on what I thought was a pretty clear-cut policy. I thought it was simpler than this, and, I, and it probably never is. So that's all for Bank Talk. Appreciate you listening in. Take care. Keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. If you would like to get into this conversation on ESG, please reach out on our website at banktalkpodcast.com. If you'd like to reach out to Max, go to the Missouri Bankers Association website. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share our work with your friends. And we will catch you in the next episode.